Madness is here. Say goodbye to busted brackets because FanDuel lets you bet on every game of the tournament. Whether you're betting on a big upset or a one seed, it's time to go dancing on America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets if your first $5 bet wins on FanDuel. That's 200 bucks to use on point spreads, money lines. You can even pick who's going to win it all. Just visit FanDuel.com slash on three and bet on college hoops until they cut down the nets. Must be 21 and older and present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus. Bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and Vermont. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 533-42 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. Dot com in Kansas, one eight seven 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 zero stop in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit one eight hundred gambler.net in West Virginia or call one eight hundred five two two four seven zero zero in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gambling helpline ma.org or call eight hundred three two seven fifty fifty four twenty four seven support in Massachusetts or call one eight seven seven eight hope. NY or text Hope NY in New York. All right, we're back. It's another Carolina podcast back on schedule after a week off. Uh, guys, it, it's been a long time since we've actually taken a week off, and this was completely my fault. I was on vacation and just away from all technology, completely disconnected, just getting sunburned and uh, completely unplugging, which is which is actually like surprisingly and weirdly needed given that we obviously haven't had sports to talk about, but it still seems like it's been as busy as ever. So nice to unplug um, and good to be back and missed a whole lot. So we have a lot to get to today that we will get to uh, right away. No dilly dallying today because a lot of stuff has happened in the last couple of weeks since we talked, including three more commits for the class of 2021 for South Carolina. Uh, another target set a decision date for a couple weeks from now and some more offers going out for intriguing prospects for the class of 2022. Um, and I'll say off the top right now, we're recording this Wednesday morning, the South Carolina high school athletic, whatever, whoever decides those things, they, they have an initialism. It's SC something, South Carolina high school something uh, is meeting right league. now. To, league is the word you're looking for. League? Yeah, South Carolina High School League. Okay, the SCHSL is meeting right now to determine what will happen to the high school, I guess all the high school sports seasons, but importantly for this podcast, the high school football season uh, this fall. But they're meeting right now. We won't have a final decision until probably after we're finished recording the podcast, so we will save most of that discussion for next week. So a little bit of recruiting for South Carolina. But we start with the big news uh, of all of college football right now, really, which is what is college football going to look like this fall? The Big Ten and Pac-12 last week decided to move to conference-only schedules, and 
Uh, I guess the exact specifics of that schedule, when the season starts, and how exactly they format the schedule is still to be determined. But the ACC, SEC, and Big 12 are still holding out. And after the SEC athletic directors met in Birmingham on Monday, we're not really any closer to a decision. Uh, Chris, you wrote a piece on GamecockCentral.com yesterday chronicling kind of what this could look like, sort of what some of the different options are and what was discussed in Birmingham. So where do you believe the SEC athletic directors are right now with regards to this coming football season? Yeah, it was really interesting that, you know, just sort of the timing of all this. And, you know, I I don't know, Pearson, if it's just the SEC right now that is in this sort of boat. The, The SEC, Greg Sankey, and, you know, the presidents and athletic directors around the league are sort of in lockstep and in, in the fact that they're not going to decide anything until later this month. Um, and now they've gotten some pressure to do so a little bit, um, whether it's group of five schools or whatever, some of these programs that are on, you know, SEC schedules for this year, what are you going to do? Are you going to conference only or are you not? And, and we do think that Power Five conferences, two of them already have gone to that model publicly with uh, the Big Ten and Pac-12, the ACC is expected to. The SEC would be expected to if things are normal, to be quite frank. Um, and and they're getting some pressure, you know, from from other conferences. And, hey, well, let's, let's get together on this plan. But really, Pearson, I think that the even bigger question than, um, you know, conference-only schedules or what to do with the fans, the bigger question right now is, is quite honestly whether or not football is even going to take place in the fall. And it's been really an interesting um, dynamic to watch and how it shifted from the outset of the virus where we're, we're almost back to square one where we're wondering, are we going to do it in the fall or are we going to do it in the spring? If you guys remember back in February, March, April, that's what we were wondering. You know, when can it happen at all? And then it shifted to it's definitely happening. It's happening on time. Um, we just got to figure out fans. And then it's, we, we think we got, even in June, it was, hey, we, we think we can pack in even more fans than originally thought. And then the last several weeks happened, and, and we're sort of back to this, this scenario. And so what I've gathered in reporting on, on the story that we published yesterday on Gamecock Central, what I've been gathering from some people in, in multiple conferences, not just the SEC, is that there's a big, big concern right now that, that the season's not going to start on time. Mm-hmm. Um, and not just on time, but that it might have to be pushed all the way to spring. It seems like the the last hope right now <clears throat> for a, a fall season is a later start and a conference only, which, you know, conference only, like I said, has already been announced and, and the winds are already blowing that way anyways. But I think the chances are sort of dwindling of playing – this fall now as we've seen this thing has changed a lot <laughs> since the outset it's shifted a lot it was only in early june i think it was like june 5th that ray tanner talked at a board meeting and was talking about being more optimistic than he had been in a while about getting more fans in the stand mm-hmm. and now here we are so it shifted a lot and so it could maybe in two or three weeks by the end of the month things look a lot better but there is a significant whether or not anybody agrees with the decision-making that's being made where we're at right now is that the power brokers are very concerned about a lot of factors. There's a lot that's going into it and they are really concerned, you know, that they're not going to be able to start on time or, or even have a season this year. The Pac-12 and Big Ten, uh, like I said, haven't officially decided what they're going to do, when they're going to start, what the schedule is going to look like, but it seems like 
they are leaning towards starting the season essentially like end of September, beginning of October, starting a month later, and then just kind of playing out the eight or nine weeks of the season and ending around the same time, end of November, early December, which would, you know, kind of keep things on track and I think be a, a good scenario. But it, it seems like that's probably preferred, as uh, Sandy Barber, the athletic director for Penn State, said a couple weeks ago that spring football is the absolute last resort. But, Chris, I'll ask you this, and I may have already asked you and Wes this a couple months ago, but since we're a little closer and have a little bit more information and since you since you talk to a lot of people, um, I don't know if you talk specifically to any of the athletic directors or just people that knew what went on in those meetings on Monday, and even if you didn't ask them specifically, do you have a sense if they would prefer a shortened season of, say, nine games played in the fall or a full 12-game season but played later in the spring? I don't have a great sense of that. I think um, I think right now, not to sort of just dismiss the question at all, I think they're concerned about playing at all, even in the spring. And, and here's why. You know, we just don't know. And Greg Sankey's pointed this out. And uh, and high school coaches have pointed this out as well. Um, and, and by the way, guys, while we were while we were recording, uh, the high school league actually did approve a plan. Uh, the, Lexington wanted to put forth the plan to move uh, spring football, move football to the spring. That was voted down, and the high school league basically has approved their own plan uh, to just begin a little bit later and play a shortened season. And so, that, and that's what, and they're leaving some flexibility in, but that's what they're going to do right now. But I'll put it this way: a high school coach yesterday told me he said, "I'm I'm more I'm more fearful of playing in the spring than I am right now." He said, at least we know what we have right now. Greg Sankey's almost said the same thing. He said, guys, how, how do we know if we agree, hey, we're going to push this off until the spring, how do we know if it's going to be any better then? And it's a valid question. And so I think people are looking around going, is this going to get better? Because if you do place all your hope and, okay, we're going to get to the spring and we'll definitely play then, what if the numbers aren't um, at some threshold in which you're comfortable then you're going you know, it feels like guys that we've got to play at some point from a financial standpoint, South Carolina is in a good position financially in the athletics department. Uh, they actually operate in the black. They turn a little bit of a profit every year. And, and you're talking about them losing, you know, 70, $80 million. And some of these smaller schools would be decimated. You know, these high schools, um, if they couldn't play a football season, some of them would be decimated. And so that it becomes a really difficult question. And so um, that's the concern that everybody has right now. I don't know that there's a preference in playing, you know, moving football to spring presents its own unique set of challenges on the college football level. Mm-hmm. And this year, you know, whenever you play, it's going to present a set of challenges. It's been very challenging to navigate so far, but I think their concern is just, can we play period when, can we do it? Mm-hmm. And trying to navigate all that's been very tough for them. Jamie Pollard, the athletic director for Iowa State, reported, uh, or I guess via uh, Brett McMurphy the other day, that Iowa State would lose about $40 million from their athletic department if no fall sports are played, and that would be added to the roughly $70 million they lost since the beginning of shutdown through the end of August. So when you say decimated, it's not just the smaller programs like we've seen, like Old Dominion having to cut wrestling and Furman having to cut baseball. You're talking about, you know, legitimate football programs, like not quite, you know, not top tier or anything, but these are legitimate power five football programs that are going to be absolutely 
you know, destroyed by by the financial reality of not having football. So I don't really think that's an option. It's going to happen, but what it looks like remains to be seen. Um, Wes, if you do move football to the spring, there's so many other implications in terms of your scholarship limit, in terms of the you know the players that. If you're a junior or, or even a senior and you have aspirations to go to the NFL, what do you do when the NFL draft is in the middle of your college season? What does that mean for all the incoming freshmen that want to enroll early in January? Are they going to be eligible to play? What does that do for your scholarship numbers? You know, there's so many implications here. I don't, I don't know. I mean, again, when you push it back, you're just you're presenting yourself with more issues and more potential unknowns. But just the amount of questions that moving to the spring raises makes me think that it's not the most realistic option at this point. Well, I think it's a, I think it's your your last case, sort of your last ditch effort. Um, I don't I don't get the sense just from what I've read and you know what Chris has heard and all that. I don't think anybody wants to go that direction now. If you have to, you have to, I guess. But um, yeah, and I, I think I don't think it's necessarily scholarship numbers. I mean, I think it, at this point they'll just you know they'll get much like with baseball and the other sports that got canceled. They'll you know you can shift stuff around, you can shift rules around as far as scholarship numbers go, but. I mean, the big thing is, is like Chris said, I mean, let, let, let's rewind, um, you know, three, three months ago, if you looked at the projections of daily cases, um, you know, as far as what the daily cases were at that point, and then looked ahead till, you know, to the middle of the summer, almost all the projections had the daily cases being almost nil in the United States by now. So at the time, there was all this confidence and growing confidence, like Chris pointed out, and it was like, uh, okay, guys, um, time is on our side. I, I think I think Ray Tanner probably said that, mentioned the time that they had to figure things out many times, and I think at this point you're almost getting to that stage where the time to make a decision is running out. So you're sort of, I think, much like anything else with this right now, much like schools trying to figure out if they should go back, or the kids should be back in schools, et cetera, et cetera. I think you're you're really left with no good decisions. You're just trying to find the best of the bad decisions, honestly. And um, also, I think worth pointing out, you know, there's maybe a misconception from people. Uh, you know, you always hear about, well, these athletic departments are making millions of dollars. Um, well, yes, they are bringing in millions of dollars, but they're also turning right back around and spending those millions of dollars um, on the student athletes, on the coaches, on the Facilities, both for the students and for fans and stuff. So, um, you know, to take out these millions of dollars that they're going to lose, um, really going to be a huge hit. And it's not something where, oh, they're, you know, wow, we're just not making them rich this year. Mm-hmm. That all that money has been budgeted to be turned right back around and spent, um, you know, throughout your athletic department. And as we've said many times, your football program drives all your minor sports in your athletic department so uh, yeah i mean the financial implications are huge i mean even conference only if it comes to that you're taking a hit but i think it's probably seen as a much more manageable hit um you know i i don't want to i don't want to speak for all the athletic directors but my guess would be if you gave them a choice of hey you could get through the entire conference slate this fall versus trying to play a 12 game in the spring. My guess is they're all going to would want to take their chances with the conference slate in the fall and keep, keep most of your TV uh, content coming, keep it during the time everybody's used to watching football. Mm-hmm. You're not competing with all the other sports. 
and um, and and go from there. You know, is my guess. I, I think, and, that, and that's that, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, could I could I jump in real quick if you don't mind, Pearson? Yeah. So I was going to say that's a great point, Wes. And you know, the more I think about it, I, I should have mentioned that earlier. And that yeah, you know, I guess I was just trying to make a broader point of the the, the people want to play. Period. I guess you know, it is a good point and a valid point to be made that the preference would be, if possible, to play it this fall because of what you said, the athletic department money is something that Pollard pointed out in that letter that you mentioned, Pearson, is that, hey, if you move football to the spring, okay, you know, number one, you got the problem of of, are you going to feel comfortable enough to play it? Um, So at some point, you got to decide we're playing and here we're either going to do it then. If we get to spring, we're definitely going to do it. Okay, it doesn't matter if the cases have tripled from what they are now. You got to play it, you know, to be able to get it in, or you just play it now because you feel like you got to play. But you know, the athletic department, like the the expenses that they have, they continue. You know, you still got to pay your coaches. You can cut some things across the board, but you got to pay your coaches. You got to, you know, have you know apparel costs and food costs and all these different things that we don't really think about on a day to day basis. I mean, South Carolina. Um, I think their budget for 2020 is they were going to spend $114 million. So if you go through a whole fall season, you're talking about several months of no revenue at all. You know, the SEC's TV distribution will come, you know, later. Um, and that's last last time it's $44.5 million per school. So it's a big windfall. But will that be affected? It could. Um, you know, the, the ticket revenue and things like that that you bring in can be affected if you don't have it fall. So how are you going to be able to make up that money for a period of several months? You may not be able to because, as I mentioned, South Carolina operates in the black, but their margins are still pretty close. You know, they, you know, they, their budget last time, I think $114 million in expenses and $127 million in revenue. So that's, hey, if you got a $13 million, you know, margin there that's really good actually for an athletic department but it's not that much (laughs) so your expenses are just about staying the same but that lack of revenue is really tough so that's a great point that you know the athletic directors would certainly prefer to play in the fall but obviously the the biggest even bigger issue is these these teams are going to have to play at some point period to make things sustainable from an ad standpoint Right. Again, I mean, if you look at just Iowa State as as sort of a representation, and I don't know what South Carolina's numbers would look like in terms of losses, but if they're anything close to Iowa State, you're talking about literally an entire year's, you know, worth of worth of budget. This just, you know, essentially down the drain. And it makes sense when you think about it. I mean, the, the two biggest sources of revenue for any athletic department are the NCAA tournament and the college football season. And if you lose both of those things, it's just, I mean, it just kind of, it kind of leaves the cupboard bare. Um, to both of your point, I, I think the numbers, and this gets, you know, I've seen a couple of these just from through the years, and it seems like the number is around like a couple dozen in terms of the athletic departments that actually operate in the black. And it's a lot of, you know, the, the teams that you would expect. It's, you know, the Ohio States and a lot of SEC schools, and you have Texas A&M and South Carolina. It's mostly who you would expect to be in that list. But I, I think what would be interesting to as we started sort of start to examine like what the financial implications are, um, how many schools can sustain this. It's always been interesting to me. I heard Ryan Rosillo, uh, I guess, talk about this on his podcast a couple weeks ago, and I thought it was a really interesting point and one that we don't talk about a lot. I mean, these universities, these are, these are nonprofit organizations. So whatever you make in excess, you, you put back into your program. And that's why, you, you know, you, you see schools that build these amazing facilities and like the, 
like the facilities that Carolina's built in the last couple of years, like like we see all over the place. That's kind of what you do with your excess because I mean you're not really supposed to be operating in the black. And I was fascinated to see that Georgia had sort of a rainy day fund set aside. Um, you know, basically, I don't remember when I saw this. This was a couple of months ago. This was when when football season was really still up in the air. I guess as it is right now, and it was like, yeah, it's going to be a big hit. Some places like Georgia have this rainy day fund. I'm like, how do you do that? Like, isn't this supposed to be a nonprofit? But the point is, these athletic departments that make a lot of money end up investing it in themselves. And you're right that a lot of that goes into supporting the non-revenue sports, which is basically everything except for except for football and basketball. And, and on a good year, South Carolina's baseball program will break even. But I, I wonder when push comes to shove and when really pushed and when you're not you know, reinvesting that money necessarily. And look, I know a lot of money was, uh, you know, obviously donated to, you know, build the long facility and things like that around South Carolina. But when push comes to shove, in addition to, you know, cutting maybe some coaches' salaries and some bonuses and things like that, do you have any idea, Chris, how, like, what the actual operating budget is for South Carolina? Like, what would be the bare minimum to not reinvest, to not get new uniforms, to not get you know, new anything, not in, invest in future facilities or anything. What Do you know? have any idea what the bare minimum budget would be for a, uh, I guess, athletic year? That's a great question. To answer it in short, no, because I don't know that we have a breakout of, for example, you know, if a school is spending $8 million on equipment for a year, well, what of that is new? What is, you know what I mean? It's It's very hard to figure out. You know, I can tell you, you know, uh, th- there are some things that South Carolina breaks out for you every now and then in terms of the budget, but it's a little bit more general, you know, and, and they tell you, hey, we expect we're going to get, say, $16 million in ticket sales, right? So you, you can sort of cut those out and things like that. And, um, USC's already said they hope to save 8 to $10 million this year, you know, on their operating cost. But is that from the $114 million? Are you only taking – 10 million out of that you're still at 100 million if so that's still that's still a lot of coin you know mm-hmm. so i don't know what the bare minimum is you would think at the minimum you take salaries you know for say your head coaches your assistant coaches that's going to be really that's honestly the bulk of what you're paying right you know per, per year i mean that's a, that's a huge aspect when you're talking about coaches support staff athletic salary now, you can look at furloughing people and things like that, but it's really hard to come up with a number. You know, I don't we might could try to sit down with, and you know, some official at the university and say, what is your bare minimum? And maybe they'd be able to come up with something. I'm sure they have because they have, have had to run all these different scenarios. But I have not heard what that number is, you know, to, to sustain things. I do feel pretty comfortable saying it'd probably be pretty high. You know, it's still going to be a, a pretty high number. I mean, if you cut it in half, which is that even feasible? I don't know without sitting here running the numbers. You're talking what? $60 million. Mm-hmm. And then you're talking about how much are you bringing in, especially during those few months when you're having to continue to operate. Um, you know, that's a, that's a difficult proposition. The other part of this, uh, again, like the, the two biggest sources of revenue, college football and uh, the NCAA tournament. And I guess to get even more specific, like for South Carolina, you know, whether the number is 16 million or ticket sales or whatever, you mentioned the 44 million. And I think that number is going to go up a little bit this year, or I think theoretically would have. But the SEC TV payout is the bulk of where 
that money comes from. Uh, Wes, I'll throw this to you, um, but if you don't know it, and Chris, you happen to have a, a number just since you've talked to people very recently um, about these sorts of things, please chime in. But do you have any idea what the discrepancy would be in terms of the TV payout for a nine-game conference season as opposed to a 12-game season? Because I understand that you know Carolina Wofford, Carolina Coastal, and Carolina East Carolina, you know those are all going to be televised. They're likely going to be on the SEC network or on the SEC network alternate, and they're going to be included in the payout. And I don't think they break each game down into like, okay, this is one-twelfth of the money, this is one-twelfth of the money, like that. But do you have any idea how different the TV payout would be if the season were three games shorter, if at all? No, I, I don't. Um, you know, and I, I think the way it's designed is, is basically there's a big pool of, of money um, from that contract. And then at the end of the year, I, I think, and Chris, you can hop in if you know, from what I remember, basically you, you have a decent idea of what that number is going to be each year. Even then, I, I don't think you know exactly until, um, you know, it's all figured up and divided at the end. And it's like, I think last year it was something like $330 million or, or something that was divided up among each school, uh, you know, at, once those checks were sent out. So, I mean, I, I would imagine there's something deep in the contract that stipulates what happens, um, you know, if uh, if things are, I guess, changed like that. And I, I would imagine that um, maybe even that's something that could be negotiated because if there are less football games, but you're still getting, are you getting more eyeballs on your eight or nine games? Uh, you know, than you would have if there if there were more games potentially. Maybe that's something that can be worked through. Right. Um, I, I think it would just depend on the uh, exact language of the contract. Does that make sense? I, I mean, I, I would imagine you sort of, if you're the SEC and you're ESPN, you'd maybe sit down and say, all right, where where are y'all at on this thing? Where are we at? Is there any way? You know, what what exactly does the contract say? And um, are are those are those eight per team SEC games more va- you know, more valuable than they were before just because of supply and demand and that, yeah, there's less games, but everybody is dying for some football. All right, well, Wes, you said supply and demand there, and I think that's a really good point because even if you're playing fewer games and so theoretically you would have you know, less revenue, fewer opportunities for advertisers. I, I think I, I think you, you hit on two things that are really good points. One, just the general demand for sports right now, and especially football, and especially because we're used to it being there. But the other part of it, and uh, Jay Phillips and I were talking about this, uh, I guess, off the air yesterday, but just go through everything in the spring that sort of ends up being competition in terms of television you have you know the end of the nfl season but it seems like if they do a college football season that would be they'd wait till after the super bowl which is a good idea but you still have uh the draft combine you still have the nfl draft you have the end of the nba regular season you have the beginning of the baseball season you have uh, you know the nba playoffs depending on when exactly the the college football season starts you have a lot of things that are competing for sort of airtime uh for headlines for all those kinds of things in the fall you have nfl and, uh, you know, the NBA is probably not going to be starting until December, so that will really won't be a competition unless college football starting way later. Um, I guess you have a little bit of regular season baseball and a regular season, uh, or excuse me, uh, pl- uh, playoff baseball, which doesn't have the same kind of national draw that it used to, you know, much more regionalized now. But, I mean, other than that, 
So I, I wonder, and again, like you, you'd have to ask the ADs and you'd have to ask TV executives and the you know the people that ink these contracts and things like that. But I, I wonder if just because of supply and demand, it would just be more valuable for the networks to have the nine games in the fall as opposed to having the 12 games in the spring. And if that wouldn't help balance out, I guess, just sort of like the finances. Yeah, I mean, I, I think they could. And I mean, you obviously right now, there's there's not many sports available and, and clearly there's going to be a shortened, uh, at least we, we hope they can get through it, Major League Baseball season, a shortened NBA season coming up soon. But, um, yeah, the fact that people are dying for some football right now and, and just really miss uh, that aspect, I, I think, of their lives. We know how important football is to a lot of people. And, um, yeah, I, I think there's certainly going to be a demand for that, and, and maybe that's shown in the ratings now. I mean, this thing goes so deep right now. It'd be hard to actually know what the numbers would look like. Would it really be more valuable? But, I mean, we're even – we keep saying a 12-game spring schedule. Um, we're we're assuming that's even possible when we say that. I mean, you could give up the eight, nine games in the fall and then get to the spring and, and be able to play 12 games then either. So, um that's a huge assumption to even compare it mm-hmm. eight or nine now to, to 12 then. So, and then, you know, are, are businesses able to spend ad dollars like they would have, um, you know, in the first place or not, you know, that, that ad revenue has to come from somewhere. It has to come from the actual businesses that want to advertise or they mm-hmm. in get enough shape financially collectively to turn around and spend money on the ad dollars or, or uh, are they sort of having to pull back and, and decrease the amount of money spent? So I think, you know, really we're, we're just speculating because we don't, we don't know what the contract actually specifically says about the SEC um, games and what happens if there are less games and how that affects the payout. And then, you know, what the, actu- what the TV deal is actually going to bring in with all these companies potentially being – um, you know, cash strapped right now because of uh, the effects of the virus on their own uh, companies. And, and, you know, the other side, what, what does the virus look like? This virus mm-hmm. is affecting pretty much everybody economically right now from business to business. So all these things sort of add together, I, I think, to create the ultimate answer to, to that question. Last question on this for now. Um, again, it's, it's a lot of speculation right now and in a couple weeks uh, towards the end of July when the SEC athletic director's actually are, are i mean we're in the 11th hour now but when they actually have to make a decision we'll obviously talk a lot more about it but uh last thing for you chris if south carolina not south carolina look at that if the sec does go to a conference only schedule like the big 10 and like the pac-12 has there been any discussion about adding a ninth or possibly even a 10th game to try to have more games and expand the schedule and if so what would they do to get a ninth or, or a 10th conference game in terms of how you how you pick which teams you're playing well, there's been a lot of discussion across conferences and different ideas about what to do there, whether you say, hey, I mean, th- there's been a lot of them. So, you know, for example, one I heard within the SEC was um, let's, let's play nine in conference and then let's try to do a plus one out of conference. I'm inclined to think that may not happen because <laughs> you're out of conference if it's, say, a team from the Pac-12 or the Big Ten or some other conference that says we're only playing conference games, then that makes it difficult, right? I mean, can schools break away from their conference in that regard and say, well, we're, we're just going to go play? I don't think so. Yeah, if everybody else and, says we're only playing our conference, that, that, pretty much, that pretty well limits your competition. 
Right, right. And so that makes it quite difficult. So, um, yeah, but there's some flexibility. And the Big Ten mentioned in their plan, you know, one reason that they're going to, you know, go to conference only is that it gives them some flexibility. So that flexibility would be for several different things. It could be to build out your game, your, your schedule to 10 games, because the other thing that, you know, we've mentioned here in the past at the college football playoff, a lot of people think, hey, you need to play 10 games. I mean, if everybody in the country plays eight games, what are we going to do with the playoff? Can you have it? If you do have it, do you have to expand it to, say, eight teams? I mean, that's an entirely different conversation. But, you know, maybe it gives you some flexibility to play a bigger schedule, you know, than, than just your regular conference slate. Some conferences obviously play nine games already. So do you add one to that, you know, within your conference? Do you play – you know, there's been discussions about doing home-and-homes with just a set number of teams – uh, one reason for the flexibility there is if one team, you know, say has has to shut down because say they get 40 positive cases or something, something that's hard to predict, and they can't make the trip or they can't host you, can you move that game to later? And so if you start out with the idea of we're gonna we're gonna play conference only, you know, you, you start out at an eight or nine game threshold, and then you can sort of move things around from there. So it, it, there's a lot of things on the table. We just don't know, you know, what it's gonna be right now and the first step is obviously we got to figure out when it's going to be right well maybe even looks like home and home with all the teams in your division and i guess that well i guess your sevens that would get you to 12 but something like that um i don't know okay i said that was the last thing and i lied because i thought of one thing as you were talking if it is conference only you know there are going to be a lot of people around the country that are pushing for rivalry games to be renewed i.e georgia georgia tech florida florida state some exceptions to be made chris do you think that anybody within the University of South Carolina Athletic Department will agitate to get Clemson put back on South Carolina's schedule if they try to go conference only? Both, my understanding, Pearson, is both Clemson and South Carolina want to play the rivalry game. Well, and there's a lot of reasons. not want to play that. Well, there's a lot of reasons behind it. And, um, you know, I mean, one is what, what, what if something, something crazy happened and South Carolina scored just a mon- – which it would be, going from what we know going into this season, being a monumental upset. But what if it happened? You know, um, that would be one part. But, you know, it's been played since, what, 1909? You know, so it's yeah, I think it's the second longest rivalry. undisturbed rivalry in, in the country. Yeah, you, then you get, you know, then then you consider all the other things. I mean, it's it's at Clemson this year, but you talk about, you know, all, all the other things that come with it. Mm-hmm. I mean, th- there's just a lot there. And so that, that is what I've been told is that both schools would prefer to play it. Now, the, it's already been reported. It hasn't been officially said by the ACC but it's been reported that they're you know going to move to that conference only model I mean that's everybody's expectation for Mm -hmm. whenever if we play football this fall or we move it back it's going to be conference only for for probably everybody and so um, I just don't know how you do that logistically if you have one or both conferences saying we're doing conference only and then you start making exceptions I just don't know if it's feasible we'll just have to see right yeah and I ask that kind of tongue-in-cheek because again everyone everyone would like that game to be played although uh, when, when that got thrown out last week, I saw a lot of Carolina fans on Twitter saying, hey, you know what, if if, uh, if Carolina doesn't have to play the hardest schedule in the country again this year, that that wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. But uh, like I said, we'll get a clearer picture here in the next couple of weeks, finally, because we're running out of time and some decisions are, are finally going to have to be made, but we will still have to wait a couple weeks for those. Uh, but with that, the recruiting season has continued. South Carolina is still continuing its voluntary workouts, and sometime here pretty soon, the coaches are, if it hasn't already already happened, because... Again, I can't keep track of the dates and everything's fluid and moving a lot, but uh, the football season is essentially resuming as normal until we hear otherwise. And with that, since the last time we spoke, South Carolina has added 
three recru- uh, recruits to the class of 2021, and uh, I guess we'll go all the way back to uh, July 3rd, and we'll start. Uh, I'll start with you, Wes, on Derwin Burgess, who committed. I think like the day after we did our last podcast. So uh, mm-hmm. reach back in the wayback machine and tell us what you know about Derwin Burgess' commitment. Yeah, really, just uh, another guy that fits this mold we talked about with South Carolina recruiting athletes who are capable of, of playing multiple positions. Um, you know, he's a 5'11", I think probably 175-pound kid. Really, I, I think maybe fits the slot receiver mold for South Carolina. Um, some schools want him at defensive back. Um, you know, he's even a guy who can maybe help you in the backfield a little bit, uh, you know, jet sweep game, maybe even special teams, stuff like that. But, uh, you know, like we've talked about a lot, South Carolina has – sort of, I guess, got a collection of guys that could play multiple positions. And I I think the value of that is we've talked about how sort of difficult it is to evaluate kids right now. So it it adds some value when maybe a guy can come in and and play a a different position if it doesn't work out at the first position. And, you know, Derwin is one of these guys that Joe Cox has kind of, I would say, focused in on. Uh, Brian McClendon started the recruiting process there for South Carolina. I think had South Carolina in a, in a decent spot, but there's maybe a little bit of a of a step back once that change took place. But Joe Cox stepped in there, developed a really strong relationship, and, and then South Carolina was able to land him. And I, I think probably another um, another win over Georgia Tech, you, you sort of look in the state of Georgia, there's been a couple of guys that Georgia Tech has gotten in on and I think felt pretty good. Erwin Burgess had them as a – public leader at one point a few months ago but South Carolina sort of dug in they got him on campus before the recruiting shutdown which was obviously huge and uh, it sort of fits that we, we saw Trenelius Tatum the linebacker had Georgia Tech way out front had been to that campus multiple times and then took one visit to South Carolina saw the facilities hmm. saw what they had to offer and uh, boom South Carolina takes the lead so I think uh, sort of fits that same I would say narrative as far as how their recruitment's played out just shifted a little bit forward as far as the timeline for things. It says he's from Riverdale. Is that Atlanta? Um, I, do you know yeah. what part of Georgia Riverdale's in, Chris? Yeah, I think it's that. I think it's that Atlanta, like metro area. I mean, it's just greater Atlanta. Gigantic. Like, like yeah. it's a, it's that's like I half think the it's state. a few miles. Yeah, it really is. It seems like it. Yeah, it's it's, it's like I think it's like five to ten miles like away from atlanta so it's it's in that vicinity does it have anything to do with the terrible netflix show riverdale don't think so haven't seen it couldn't say okay all right very good we'll leave it at that but yeah derwin burgess uh you mentioned georgia tech some of the other schools that had expressed interest in burgess or offered him scholarships uh tennessee west virginia florida state east carolina um, so for everybody that's worried about, you know, offer lists and things like that, uh, there you go. But another uh, three-star athlete getting more of those versatile guys. Uh, the next guy, and this is actually the next day, this is on the 4th of July, uh, TJ Sanders. Chris, I'll throw this one to you. Again, this was a couple weeks ago, so dial it back if you can. Tell us what you know about TJ Sanders. Yeah, I mean, TJ is a guy that South Carolina had on its radar pretty early, had him up uh, – Wes, was that the last weekend possible <laughs> to get him on campus before things shut down, I think? Or definitely one um, of the last know, weekends. Yeah, it was um, – I think he was in on March 1st. Yeah, so, I mean, you, you're right up against it there. I mean, I think the following week things were things were done on that front. So, South Carolina did well to get him in. 
The staff eyeballed him during that visit. They liked what they saw on film. They knew about him, heard good things about him, but they saw him and they immediately pulled the trigger on an offer. And Wes actually went up to the school and was able to sort of report back that, you know, really we thought South Carolina was going to be good in good shape going forward and probably going to be pretty hard to beat. You know, it's clear he was in no rush. I think this is one where it might have actually helped South Carolina that things did get shut down because TJ – you know, he sort of wanted to go take some other visits and experience mm-hmm. the process and maybe would have gone to some camps and really blown up. And not to say South Carolina wouldn't have landed him under that scenario. I think they would have had a great shot to land him, but the competition would have been even tougher. But even even as it was, he, he picked up some other offers. And, um, you know, South Carolina just stayed the course, and they were able to go ahead and land him. But this is a big, you know, six foot four, 285-pound kid who's a quality basketball player. He's got a – Nice touch on the basketball court, big kid. He can move, um, and he's only played football for a year. So when you look at what he is on the field right now, you're already impressed by the size and the movement. But you you look at the canvas that he's going to bring to the program, um, there's a lot to like. And I think possibly the highest upside kid in the state of South Carolina, in my opinion. Hmm. And so uh, a guy that's a really good get, I think, for the staff, has a lot of potential. Yeah, but local kid, you mentioned Marion, but offers from NC State, uh, Syracuse, Tennessee, Virginia Tech, uh, West Virginia, Wake Forest, a lot of places like that. So a very intriguing prospect there for Carolina. And, uh, Chris, I'll ask you, and then I have to go back to West to uh, ask about Burgess because I said I was going to do this, and then I kept forgetting to do it. But uh, in this season of uncertain recruiting, does this feel more like a reservation or a true commitment? Um, I think it's a commitment, man. I mean, you know, now – TJ, like I said earlier, I mean, I think he would have taken some visits, but I think he's comfortable with the decision that he made. And Mm -hmm. I can't 100% guarantee that if in-person recruiting isn't open back up, that he won't go see some places. But I'm I'm skeptical of that. I I think that um, they have a a great shot at hanging on to him. I mean, you got to consider it's not like he's been to South Carolina even 20 times or so. So um, if if Mm -hmm. things don't get opened up until later, you know, I think that, He'll he'll use those times, which may be very limited, to be frank in this cycle, you know, to go check out a game at South Carolina if if it's allowed, or to go see campus again. I think they'll be in good position to hang on to him. Uh, Wes, uh, same question for Derwin Burgess. Yeah, you know, I'd say if um, if I'd, I'd say yeah, it's a commitment. I, I think the fact he visited before, um, you know, things got shut down as well is, is always a good sign. Uh, for somebody, you know, for schools hanging on to a kid, uh, you know, I would say if if TJ, you know, TJ being an in-state kid, if TJ is like a nine or a nine point five, um, you know, as far as commitment level, you'd uh, you'd maybe dial it back a half number, um, you know, for Derwin just being an out-of-state kid. But but yeah, I think if you look at him, he really it wasn't a surprise when he committed to South Carolina, and I, I think he had sort of thought about that for a number of weeks and, and maybe even longer than that before he actually went public with the commitment and generally to me those guys tend to when a guy sort of has a, a decision date set and then is going back and forth leading into the decision and there's a little bit of uncertainty you know maybe that's a guy to track but when you know it's a situation like Burgess where we had heard for weeks leading up to it that South Carolina was in good shape a commitment is coming soon that generally means the kid has taken his time and, and thought through it. Now, you know, there's always a caveat what happens if somebody new offers and grabs their attention. You know, that's always possible in recruiting. But, 
you know, I, I think as we stand right now, these I'd say both those guys are, are pretty firmly committed to South Carolina. All right, last guy, most recent commitment, and this one uh, again, just if you if you follow Twitter, message boards, people's reaction, this one felt big, and uh, I'll keep it here with you, Wes. George Wilson, he's still just listed as the three star guy, but again, look at his offer list. Arizona State was heavily in there, uh, Michigan State, Ole Miss, Oregon, Penn State. Hey, John Scott Jr., y'all probably remember that name. I think I think he was uh, his uh, was Wilson's recruiter up at Penn State, uh, Tennessee again, Virginia, Virginia Tech. So good offer list, but three star George Wilson out of Virginia Beach, Virginia committed to South Carolina West. What do you know about George Wilson? Yeah, well, in the uh, the biggest competition there, I would say, would be North Carolina. Um, and uh, not, a, not a surprise that John Scott Jr. was involved. I think he's offered every single player that South Carolina has offered on the defensive line to this point. Um, so not not a surprise that he's he was after George as well. And, even, you know, Penn State, I, I think for a while, if you sort of follow the predictions and stuff, was maybe – an earlier favorite than most people thought when North Carolina, you know, jumped in and, and offered him kind of late, but quickly jumped into the top four. That was sort of the perceived favorite. But in the last, I would say week, two weeks, few weeks, somewhere along that way, South Carolina really just locked down, made a huge push for him and uh, was able to sort of finish off his recruitment after they've been on him since I think last October, he they were only his third offer, so they were able to get early. Kyle Krantz, again, did a great job in the state of Virginia. Mike Peterson, who is, I would say, just silently handles his business at his at his position, was really big, I think, with Jordan Birch last uh, class and now was sort of quietly really big with George Wilson. And I think he's a perfect fit for that buck position. I mean, 6'5", 215 pounds. Um, you know, is a basketball kid, so a lot of times it's hard for those guys in high school to put on much weight because there's so much running in basketball. This kid um, is actually a really good basketball player. He's a four-year starter for a school that won the state championship in basketball last year. And, um, you know, most of the time once those guys get in, when you have a frame like that, you put them in a college weight program, they instantly start gaining muscle and gaining weight. So I, I would expect that to be the case with him. But speed, man, quickness, um, he can change direction once he gets in the backfield and finish up, uh, you know, getting to the quarterback. I talked to one of his coaches, uh, I guess that was earlier in the week, maybe Monday afternoon, and he was like, man, this kid just every day at practice does something that we look around and are like, did you just see what he just did? So um, I, I think he's a freak of nature athletically and uh, maybe a little bit raw, but somebody that that Mike Peterson is going to have a lot of fun coaching up at, at that buck position. Two more guys before we get out of here. That does it for the new commits for South Carolina and filling up their class of 2021. Everyone was worried about it like a month ago, but that's they got, got a good number in there now. I don't know what it is, but double digits now, I think, right? At least like 12, 13, 14, something like that. So 15. Every, 15. Yeah. So for all the hand wringing, they're out. They're filling up their class of 2021. They are going to have a, a full football roster in 2020 and 21. Uh, but two more guys to be on the lookout for. Um, Chris, uh, well, actually, I'll, I'll stick with you, Wes, and we'll finish with Chris because uh, Antonio Inter- uh, uh, Brown. I keep wanting to call him Antonio Brown because it, it looks very similar if you just, like, extend the R. But Antonio Brown has set a commitment date, and he's uh, also for the class of 2021. Um, you know, I think he's a kid that we've said for some time, if people are paying attention on our Gamecock Central message boards, um, probably – among there, there were probably four guys at running back that we've been continuously tracking and that we told the fans to continue to track 
and, um, you know, as possibly being that second running back in the class. Um, for, I would say, the last couple to few weeks, we've said Ontario Brown is probably the one to watch there as the best bet. Um, you know, to be the, the next running back, he's now set that date for August 5th, which obviously not very far down the road. And, uh, you know, I think South Carolina's in good shape. This is the kid that Des Kitchings uh, really found early on, was the first to offer. We've seen some other schools step in, uh, NC State, Virginia Tech, um, you know, probably the, the bigger schools. I think Virginia Tech is probably South Carolina's biggest competition right now. That's the top two. Um, but, yeah, I think South Carolina's in good shape here. And comes from a school, Chad, you know, I was talking to Chad Simmons, who does a great job there in Georgia. He saw the kid at MVP camp. Uh, before everything got shut down and had no idea who he was at first instantly you know put a three-star on him just based on what he saw in one day of camp and said this is a this is somebody that I need to watch moving forward wanted to see him you know in spring ball wanted to see him in fall ball this year obviously spring ball never happened but uh, there in like 10 years there hasn't been a guy at Ontario Brown school that has gone FBS Uh, so it's sort of a and under the radar school there in Savannah, not very many people have known about him, but you know I think has has garnered the interest of, of schools once word has gotten out. But uh, South Carolina and Des Kitchings have done a good job of of getting in with him. And from everything I've heard, man, this is also just a really driven kid. Um, he he's gone through some loss in his life, and uh, just is also the type of leader and sort of lead by example worker guy that you kind of want to build your the dna of your program around as well so i I think there are a lot of reasons that south carolina would like to add him to the program last guy to talk about today and uh chris we'll we'll finish with you because i think you spoke to him the other day have your piece up on gamecockcentral.com if y'all want to read it but oftentimes when you have a player in, in any sport or just in general like a person that's really big it's kind of funny to ironically call them tiny or smalls or something, but it's a rare opportunity uh, when we get to talk to somebody or talk about someone that fits that description and is actually named Smalls, and that's the case for Iman Smalls, who is anything but small. So, Chris, what did you learn? Uh, South Carolina recently offered him. What did you – and is he class of 2022? He is actually 2023. 2023, okay. Um, so what yeah. did you learn about uh, about Iman Smalls and talking to him the other day? Well, this is a kid that we've known about for a little bit and and knew that he was a big kid that some coaches down in that Buford area played against him last year. They knew about, they talked about him and said he has a chance to be really good. But just got a chance to to look at him in person this past weekend. There was a camp at Ben Lipton, the Infinity Football Elite Series camp that's in year one, and he was one of the participants there. And so got to look at him, and it certainly did not disappoint with the size. I think he measured in at six, two and a half and 325 pounds. And so you look at him physically and I pointed him out to a few of the other high school coaches that were there at the camp and said, Hey, check this kid out. And they said, wow, that's a good looking kid. And I said, yeah, he's a, he's a sophomore. What do you think? And they, they couldn't believe it. So he's a big kid. He did a nice job from what I saw in the drills and the limited one-on-ones that they did have at the event. Um, and, and not long after, um, you know, he got an offer from South Carolina. I think that was Monday. And so uh, some people who, you know, worked the camp there were impressed by him. And uh, he, he's, he's, he's one of those guys that just, you know, he's, it's hard to remember that he's still pretty young. And so he's got a ways to go, but very, very intriguing. And he's got 
some other Power Fives, FSU, Virginia Tech, North Carolina, Wake Forest are among the schools that are uh, that are already showing more interest in him. But South Carolina jumped in first. He grew up um, a Gamecock fan, has a bunch of family ties to South Carolina, and, and really likes what he's seen so far. He's been on campus a couple times, so obviously sort of filed away because there's a long way to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but another guy to watch in state for that class. Yeah, it'll be a while, but South Carolina in early with uh, Iman Smalls, who, again, is anything but. So if you want to read uh, Chris's piece on that on GamecockCentral.com, do that. Uh, GamecockCentral.com just, I mean, really popping right now. Obviously, tons of news and tons of speculation about what the football season will look like. As soon as that news breaks, it will be on GamecockCentral.com. Uh, we also have everything going on football-related, whether it's recruiting, whether it's what's going on with the actual football camp, which is, like I said, still going on. Ezra Mukwamu recently named a preseason All-American by Phil Steele. Uh, you can read that on GamecockCentral.com. Colin Taylor has a great series right now of top senior seasons and late yesterday published the wide receiver edition. So plenty of stuff on GamecockCentral.com. Go be a subscriber there. Um, if you're not, you're really missing out. And uh, this is free, though. We will keep this free, the Gamecock Central Podcast Network. It's not as uh, not as rangy, not as much stuff going on, but we hope you enjoy uh, what we are doing here. Um, and again, as we get closer to football season, we were actually supposed to start our position group breakdown today since we're seven weeks and change away from the season and there are seven position groups if you don't include special teams which we would have lumped in somewhere else uh, but with a little bit up in the air we're gonna we're gonna hold off on that and then maybe uh, condense it and maybe roll a couple into one episode if we get a little bit closer and uh, need to do so but anyway don't forget to rate review subscribe to the Gamecock Central podcast network as well and for Wes for Chris I'm Pearson thanks so much for listening and we'll talk to you next time Madness is here. Say goodbye to busted brackets because FanDuel lets you bet on every game of the tournament. Whether you're betting on a big upset or a one seed, it's time to go dancing on America's number one sports book. Right now, new customers get $200 in bonus bets if your first $5 bet wins on FanDuel. That's 200 bucks to use on point spreads Money lines. You can even pick who's going to win it all. Just visit FanDuel.com slash on three and bet on college hoops until they cut down the nets. Must be 21 and older in present in select states. First online real money wager only. $10 first deposit required. Bonus issued as non-withdrawable bonus. Bets that expire seven days after receipt. See terms at sportsbook.fanduel.com. FanDuel is offering online sports wagering in Kansas under an agreement with Kansas Star Casino LLC. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit fanduel.com slash RG in Colorado, Iowa, Michigan, New Jersey, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Illinois, Kentucky, Tennessee, Virginia, and Vermont. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP or text Next Step to 53342 in Arizona, 1-888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org slash chat in Connecticut, 1-800-9-WITH-IT in Indiana, 1-800-522-4700 or visit ksgamblinghelp.com. In Kansas, 1-877-770-STOP in Louisiana. Visit mdgamblinghelp.org in Maryland. Visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net in West Virginia or call 1-800-522-4700 in Wyoming. Hope is here. Visit gamblinghelplinema.org or call 800-327-5050 for 24-7 support in Massachusetts or call one 800 
877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY in New York.